The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose some of our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Max Jeffrey writes from Blackpool where he says you can see the welfare crisis at its very worst. Lisa Hazeldine reads her interview with the wife of Vladimir Karamurza, whose husband is a Russian-British journalist currently languishing in a Siberian jail. Christopher Howes reads his piece about an ancient synagogue that's currently under threat from developers. Philip Henscher reads his book review of Write, Cut, Rewrite by Dirk Van Hull and Mark Nixon about some of the early revisions of well-known authors currently housed at the Bodleian Library. And Calvin Poe reads his art lead where he asks whether Labour will allow architects to reshape housing should they take power at the next election. Up first, Max Jeffrey. It is mid-afternoon in the Royal Oak pub in Blackpool and Liv has arrived to sell a bag full of stuff she's stolen from the supermarket. She's got fabric conditioner, soap, cream eggs and a large bar of dairy milk. She pulls in a few pounds and then leaves to score some crack. Everyone struggles, says a man watching her sell. Lots of people here don't work. People earn money however they can. In Blackpool, you see the worst of Britain's welfare crisis. More than a quarter of the city's working age residents are on out-of-work benefits the highest proportion in the UK, and twice the national average. In parts of South Shore, right near the promenade, and home to a once strong tourism industry, it's closer to 60%. There used to be circuses and casinos, and Peter Kay once filmed here. That's all gone. Most locals feel as if there's no hope of a better life. Universal credit reform was supposed to come with universal support. The levelling up agenda was supposed to sort out the area. But the promised help never arrived. Next to the Royal Oak, there was once a bingo hall called the Apollo. It was plush and grand with Art Deco furnishings. It closed in 2009, the same year the regional office of the Department for Work and Pensions was shuttered. There used to be a market near the pub too. You could buy anything you wanted, Jeff, 67, tells me. He fondly remembers buying cheap knock-off alcohol near Lytham Road. Now there are only takeaway shops, off-licenses and hardware stores, and many of these are also closing down. No one seems to care about Blackpool anymore. Jeff once worked in a car factory, making exhaust pipes that got sent on to Sunderland or Liverpool. After a day's work, he'd go down to the job centre and say he was unemployed to give his salary a bump. He'd turn up in a high-vis jacket, coated in dust from the factory. They'd ask if he'd worked in the past few weeks. Not a minute, he'd reply. The official figures didn't pick up people like Jeff, considered workless by the state but doing undeclared work to get by. They still don't. High penalties, such as tax or the cost of coming off welfare, force people into an informal economy with low pay and little protection. You have to live off your wits in this town, says Jeff. There's a grey market for work in Blackpool, as in many other places in Britain. When a big show comes here, a Mercedes van parks up behind the promenade, opens its back door and drops people off to beg. At the end of the night, they return to the van and hand the cash to the driver. It sounds more like slavery than freelance earning. Locals say the off-licenses are just fronts for drug money too. Lots of work is cash in hand. Many people in Blackpool are really too ill to work. The health service is in a bad way. 
opposite the pub, a man called Pete, 55, says that he's on disability benefits for a fractured lower spine, osteoarthritis and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. He can feel the bones in his back clatter when he walks. He worked in the Apollo for 17 years, but says he hasn't had a proper job since it closed. All the government wants to do is get you into work, he says. The DWP website lists 178 disability-confident jobs in Blackpool, but that's not enough for everybody here. The department's own numbers show 7% of the town to be on incapacity benefit. South Shore is the sort of place that Boris Johnson promised to improve. There are job vacancies in Blackpool, 7,000 listed on one jobs website, but everyone says there's no work. It can be hard to square. Online, there are vacancies as a hotel night receptionist for £10.50 an hour, or a 30000 a year bar manager, but people in South Shore say it's not real work. Most of the jobs dry up after the summer, when the tourists leave. No one comes here in February. Some people save enough money in the summer to get them through the winter months. Others end up homeless or in temporary accommodation. Back in the Royal Oak, a homeless man called Stephen says he came here from Mansfield in search of a better life. Everyone thinks Blackpool streets are paved with gold, says a man by the bar. It was in Blackpool, in 2005, that David Cameron launched his bid for the leadership of the Tory party with a no-notes conference speech that turned him from nobody to favourite. Four years later, in Blackpool again, Cameron attacked a welfare system that he said meant some kept just 4p in every extra pound they earned. People had been sent an unhelpful message by a broken system, he said. From every extra pound you earn, we'll take back 96p. Yes, 96p. Let me say that again, slowly. Cameron didn't do enough to fix the old system. Last year, when the Nobel laureate Angus Deaton published his review into the UK welfare system, he found that it is still not uncommon for lone parents to face a marginal effective tax rate of 96%. In places such as Blackpool, the welfare trap is at its worst and creates a sense that the system is rigged against the poorest people. Neither Labour nor the Conservatives come to Blackpool for their conferences anymore. Both parties prefer big cities with nicer hotels and restaurants, better suited to party donors and corporate sponsors. Perhaps they're just too embarrassed. Politicians made promises here, but never delivered. Even the Royal Oak is set to close next month. I'm leaving. I'm done with it, says one shop owner who sells food and hardware. They've killed Blackpool. That was Max Jeffrey. Next, Lisa Hazeldine. Opposing Vladimir Putin is a lethal business. The world was reminded of this last week after the sudden death of the opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The Russian authorities are blaming Navalny's demise on sudden death syndrome. But whether it was outright murder or simply the result of three years spent in Russia's penal system, the responsibility lies squarely with Putin. The danger of standing up to Putin is something that Russian-British journalist and author Vladimir Karamurza knows only too well. An active campaigner for Russian democracy, Karamurza was an ally of Navalny. He is responsible for convincing the West to sanction Putin-friendly oligarchs. In the early 2010s, he worked with Boris Nemtsov to introduce the Magnitsky Act in the US and similar legislation across the West. In the past decade, he has survived two suspected poisonings. Last April, he was given a 25-year jail term for speaking out against the Ukraine war, the longest sentence handed down to a political prisoner since the collapse of the Soviet Union. With Navalny gone, he has become the Kremlin's most high-profile detainee. Karamurza was first jailed for criticising the war in 2022. Then, at his trial a year later, he was found guilty of spreading false information about Russia's army, participating in an undesirable organisation and treason. Russia has since kept him in isolation in a Siberian prison colony in Omsk, and at the end of last month he was secretly moved, resurfacing a day later in a harsher colony close by. It was an alarming 24 hours during which his family and legal team were unable to contact him.
He told his lawyer the move was his punishment for refusing to rise when asked to by a guard. This didn't come as a surprise to his wife, Evgenia, 43. The regime is afraid of anyone who dares speak their mind, even from behind bars, she says on the phone from the family home in Virginia in the US where she's based with the couple's three children. The authorities are doing everything they can to isolate these people. This is why many anti-war activists and political prisoners have been put behind bars for speaking out against the war and the regime, she says. What distinguishes Karamorzav from other political prisoners in Russia is that he is a British citizen. He moved to Harrow, Greater London, at the age of 14 when his mother married an Englishman. He went to a local school, then read history at Cambridge. Since his imprisonment, Evgenia has been lobbying the British government to help. A date has been set for her to meet Lord Cameron soon, which makes her very happy, she says. After news broke about Karamorzav's disappearance last month, the Foreign Secretary said he was deeply concerned for him. British embassy representatives in Moscow were banned from the courtroom during Karamurza's trial. His appeal failed, prompting Rishi Sunak to speak out on Twitter. This is desperate and unfounded, the Prime Minister wrote. Rejecting Karamurza's appeal is unjustifiable. He should be released immediately. The United Kingdom stands with him and his family. Evgenia says, I was a bit surprised that it took Sunak over a year after becoming Prime Minister to make a statement about an unlawfully detained British citizen. But at least he made it in the end. She thinks the British government could be doing more to get her husband released. Has the government's response been lacklustre because it views Karamurza as a Russian activist, not a British citizen? I hope this is not the case, Evgenia says. She believes Britain should establish an office to deal exclusively with British citizens wrongfully detained abroad. It's a proposal that is supported by the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Alicia Kearns. They need to try and find ways to prevent this from happening in the first place, Evgenia says. They need to find ways to prevent people being used as bargaining chips in these political games. And if she can't make them listen? There is always a hunger strike, right? She appears to be only half-joking. Evgenia is concerned about the conditions her husband is being held in. At the first prison, she says he was living in constant torture. Similar to Navalny, Karamurza was kept in a cell measuring approximately two by three metres. With a bed, he was only allowed to pull down at night. The only furniture was a backless stool. He wasn't allowed to rest during the day and was given just 90 minutes daily to exercise in a small courtyard. Guards barked orders at him through a tannoy in his cell. He does not have any rights to phone calls or visits, Evgenia says. Before Christmas, he hadn't talked to his kids in months. Over the holiday period, he was granted a 15-minute phone call with them, five minutes with each child. Evgenia timed each call with a stopwatch so as not to deprive any of them of time with their father. The only visitor Karamurza is allowed is his lawyer, who comes for an hour a week. Before his recent prison move, Evgenia could only communicate through letters. He was given 90 minutes a day to read and reply to as many letters as he could. After the two suspected attempts on his life, when doctors found traces of heavy metals in his system, Karamurza developed polyneuropathy, a degenerative illness that causes a loss of sensation in the limbs. His treatment in prison, Evgenia says, is exacerbating his symptoms. According to his lawyer, he has lost at least 25 kilos, she says. Both attacks on him occurred in Moscow. A Bellingcat investigation has claimed the same assassination squad was behind them as tried to kill Navalny in 2020. The first time, in 2015, Karamurza fell ill after eating at a restaurant in the city centre. His heart, lungs, kidney and liver failed, and he was placed on life support in an induced coma. Eventually he was transferred to the US for treatment, after which he needed to walk the cane for a period. Two years later, he was treated in the same Moscow hospital, where he was admitted to intensive care before leaving Russia for further rehabilitation. 
Although he regularly travelled for work, Karamurza had been based with his family in the US before returning to Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. Why did he choose to go back at such a dangerous moment, particularly considering the previous attempts on his life? He believes he has to share those risks and challenges faced by people back home to have the moral right to speak on their behalf and to call on them to continue resisting this atrocity, Evgenia says. Navalny's death has shone a new light on the sacrifices he, Karamurza and other Russian democracy campaigners have made for the cause. Many regard them as heroes and martyrs. As more details of Navalny's prison experience and death emerge, it is a reminder that Karamurza and other political prisoners like him are also extremely vulnerable. As long as Putin remains in the Kremlin, Karamurza will remain behind bars. For Yevgenia, there is no choice but to carry on campaigning for her husband. You fight for that person, and you fight for your family, and you fight for your kids, and you make sure that you do everything possible to make sure that the person you love survives, she says. It was not a choice that I was making. Considering the different alternatives, it was a given. That was Lisa Hazeldine. Now, Christopher Howes. There was a little number, 223, pasted onto the back of one of the centuries-old wooden seats in Bevis Mark Synagogue in the city of London. What are these, I asked. Rabbi Shalom Morris, who was showing me round. They're called gavetas, he replied, opening the lid of a compartment in the bench. It's a Portuguese word. They're for people to leave their personal property here, prayer shawls and things, as we don't carry anything on Shabbat. It was a detail that impressed on me the long history of the Sephardi tradition here the oldest continuously functioning synagogue in Europe today. And now Bevismarck Synagogue is under threat. There's a proposal for a 43-storey tower block a few yards away at 31 Berry Street, which would literally overshadow the synagogue in its quiet paved courtyard. Rabbi Morris, with a habitual smile and a New York accent from his upbringing, sounded the most unhappy when trying to convey his relations with the City of London authorities. He's fighting their planning decisions and simultaneously pleading with them, an uncomfortable position. In the face of what Rabbi Morris calls an abuse of power and a breach of our community's trust, the defence of Bevis Marx has attracted some eminent people, Nine professors of history, a former Lord Mayor, a former Master of the Rolls, and well-known names like the historian Simon Sharma and the novelist Howard Jacobson were among the 27 signatories of a letter in the Daily Telegraph declaring that the city's failure to consider the religious and cultural dimensions of the synagogue will cause outrage. To me... Any very tall building in the city plonked next to an ancient place of worship is bullying bad manners. In the street called Bevis Marks, a name deriving from the property of the abbot of Bury St Edmunds, a block built in 2019 bulges out over it, earning itself the nickname the Can of Ham. I realise that some people like tall glass-clad buildings, just let them not build them in front of St Paul's or the remaining old buildings of the City of London, which give us reason to love it as a tight urban development on a human scale. 
The reductio ad absurdum of recent London developments has been the proposal to build a 20-storey block actually above the listed Liverpool Street station and the hotel next door. The case of Bevis Mott's synagogue is particularly painful because it is unique of its kind as historically emblematic to Jewry as St Paul's Cathedral is to Christianity. What is so frustrating for defenders of the synagogue is that only in June 2022 the city denied planning permission for development at 31 Berry Street because it would adversely affect the setting of the Grade 1 listed Bevismart Synagogue. But since then, the city authorities have decided not to include 31 Berry Street in considering the immediate setting of the synagogue. And although 31 Berry Street is now part of a conservation area, a prohibition of very tall buildings in the conservation area has been dropped. In response to a city report on the synagogue, Abigail Green, Professor of Modern European History at Oxford, made a point that struck a chord. The heritage value of Bevis Mark's synagogue is not purely architectural, she said. Well, to me, there's all the difference between a place of worship of historic beauty being conserved in use and one kept open only as a museum. The latter can have the tragic air of a house abandoned in wartime. Bevis Marks is a living community, not a museum. It holds Friday night and Saturday morning services and is popular for weddings. Its architecture also reflects the fortunes of the Jewish community since their implied readmission to England under Oliver Cromwell several centuries after the expulsion of Jews in 1290. The synagogue from the outside looks like a plain brick preaching box of the period. It is not showy, less so even than the contemporary St. Bennet Paul's Wharf, one of Wren's essays in Red Brick. The flat east end of the synagogue forms part of the continuous building line along Henage Lane, a quiet Yorkstone pedestrian thoroughfare with lampposts down the middle. It remains the only non-Christian place of worship in the city. The builders of the synagogue were trying not to ask for trouble, just as the 18th century Catholic church in Warwick Street, built in the era before Catholic emancipation, also kept to unadorned red brick with round-headed windows. Hence, at Bevis Marks, the discreet entrance is from a courtyard. Today, a stone is set over the iron gates from the street. The security man lets me in since I had an appointment. That's the way things are today. The stone bears an inscription repeated over the doorway within. AM5461. AM stands for Anno Mundi. Above the date is an inscription in Hebrew, Shah Hashamayim, the gate of heaven. The reference is to Jacob awaking after his vision of the ladder to heaven and exclaiming, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place, 
This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. It's a reference also taken up by Christian churches. Entering the synagogue from the courtyard at its western end, the visitor faces the ark at the far end, which contains the Torah scrolls in a cabinet behind doors. Two panels above are inscribed with the Ten Commandments. There's a direct parallel here with the commandment boards directed to be set up in Church of England parishes under Elizabeth I. Indeed, the ark at Bevis Marks bears a striking resemblance to a, a Wren altarpiece. The architect was a master builder called Joseph Avis, who had worked for Wren, as had his craftsmen. The architectural historian, Sharman Kaddish, notes other similarities to Wren churches and to contemporary non-conformist churches, such as the large round-headed windows in all four walls filled with clear glass and the galleries on each side, which are here accommodated uh, for the use of women worshippers. Bevis Marks, says Dr. Kaddish, is rooted in English soil, built by an English architect using English materials and is influenced by contemporary English styles. On the other hand, it cannot be fully understood without reference to the architectural tradition of the Western Sephardim, the Spanish and Portuguese Jews that began in Amsterdam. Inside, it is a quiet symphony of woodwork. The old floorboards, the high-seated benches facing the centre, as in Oxbridge colleges, the reading platform like a little stern deck of a ship, the Tuscan pillars supporting the galleries, conventionally painted to resemble marble. From the plain ceiling, seven big brass chandeliers hang low to shed the light of hundreds of candles on service books. The biggest chandelier in the centre was a gift from the Portuguese Great Synagogue of Amsterdam. But they weren't intended for use instead of daylight, Visually, the marvellous thing is that the interior hasn't obviously been messed around. The synagogue escaped many mortal dangers. A hundred yards away, the great synagogue from the Ashkenazi tradition was destroyed in the Blitz. Few now seem aware of its existence. And then the IRA bombings of the Baltic Exchange in 1992, and of Bishopsgate in 1993, left only superficial damage. A more insidious danger loomed in the 1880s. A dependent Sephardic uh, synagogue had been built in 1866 at Bryanston Street near Marble Arch. It would make perfect sense to sell the land at Bevis Marks to fund the synagogue in the West End, it was thought. This disastrous error of judgment was headed off by the gloriously named Bevis Marks Anti-Demolition League. Rabbi Morris, who has been here nine years, lives over the shop, or at least next door to the synagogue. He took me out into the courtyard to the northern corner of the building. There we could see the sky on two sides, towards the south. In Jewish practice, the Sabbath ends when three stars are visible, 
and a month begins when the moon is seen in the sky. The proposed tower block would obliterate that sky. It survived the Blitz, two subsequent bomb attacks and Victorian attempts at demolition, says William White, Professor of Architectural History at the University of Oxford. It would, he adds, be a tragedy for our generation to be the ones who disregarded its significance as both an architectural gem and a precious piece of religious heritage. That was Christopher House. Next, Philip Hensher. The early stages of a literary work are often of immense interest. It's perhaps a rather tawdry kind of interest, like paparazzi shots of a Hollywood starlet taking the bins out before she's put her makeup on. Of course, it's extraordinary to think that some of the most famous characters, events and lines in literature weren't as we now know them, but had to be struggled towards. Sometimes these efforts have the anachronistic but unavoidable sense of somebody getting it wrong. Textual bibliographers have carefully classified the different steps a work takes from manuscript to first edition and subsequent versions. Perhaps we could go further in search of a writer's progress. There are the inchoate thoughts remote from any conscious intention, perhaps a sound, a mood, a phrase, a voice, a movement. Then some words that might merit being written down, even though no coherence is discernible. But writers work in such different ways that none of this is universal. Soon we start to have more consecutive writing, a few lines you've even seen. A draft follows which could be modified in any number of ways. At some point, eyes other than the author's fall on the manuscript. Suggestions are made, changes might even be enforced, and agreement is reached on a final manuscript, which is sent to the printer and out to an audience. Some or none of these stages may be preserved for the curious investigator. Occasionally, we have everything from the first jottings to the last authorised text. In many cases, however, writers have destroyed all other versions apart from the one first published, either by conscious decision or just custom. Sometimes, even in these instances, we still have signs of the author's thoughts and decisions because the work appeared in a subsequent rethought form. The differences between the first and second versions of The Dunciad and Brideshead Revisited tells an enormous amount about the way Alexander Pope and Evelyn Waugh thought and worked. Whether all this often amounts to more than vulgar curiosity, I'm not quite sure. Bleak House is a work about which we know an enormous amount, almost from the moment of its conception. But what do we really learn about the finished novel by discovering that Dickens had jotted down dozens of other ideas for the title? With a few exceptions, for example, the first published edition rather than the last revised version of Samuel Richardson's Clarissa or Henry James's novels, we prefer the last text the author approved. That is really the proper subject for discussion. Still, there is a lot to be said for vulgar curiosity, and there is no doubt that sifting through preliminary drafts turns up a lot to pique that particular interest. Write, Cut, Rewrite is an agreeable glimpse of some highlights from an important collection of literary manuscripts in the Bodleian Library, Oxford. 
For some reason, the book also discusses Samuel Beckett's manuscripts housed at Reading University, but otherwise it sticks to the Bodleian's collection. This has its disadvantages in approaching the subject. A study of the development of individual texts would certainly prefer to look at some more celebrated or dramatic progresses. These could include Dickens's working notes. There might be the vexed question of whether the first quarter of Hamlet might be Shakespeare's first thoughts rather than a hopelessly corrupt text. To be or not to be, aye, there's the point. To die, to sleep, is that all? And then there's the extraordinarily fascinating case of the version of The Wasteland that T.S. Eliot let Ezra Pound cut to the bone. On the other hand, the Bodleian collection is so rich that we might even quibble with the choices Dirk van Huller and Mark Nixon have made from them. I suppose it's quite interesting to a Barbara Pym obsessive like me that Mildred Lathbury, the heroine of Excellent Women, was once going to be called Clarissa but it would have been much more interesting to have discussed another Pym manuscript, the first version of her first published novel, Some Tame Gazelle. As revealed by Paula Byrne, Pym's excellent recent biographer, the Bodleian manuscript, written in the 1930s, has its two cosy spinster heroines embedded in fond nostalgia for their adolescence as Nazis. She was wondering whether to wear a little swastika brooch or not. The neglect of such a jaw-dropping typescript probably only suggests what riches are to be found in the collection overall. Here we have some thought-provoking insights into works in progress, some meticulous and tiny. James Joyce makes a momentous improvement to the second edition of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by instructing his editor, Harriet Weaver, to delete a single comma from the first page of the first edition, the smallest changes require detailed justification. Instead of when you wet the bed, comma, first it is warm, then it gets cold, he required, when you wet the bed, first it is warm, then it gets cold, without a comma. The comma is removed, it stops being a careful rendering of child's voice and becomes closer to that voice itself. Of course, much of this is tinkering, which may exasperate readers who focus on the meaning and not the means of literature. It's like trying to create the perfect joke, and sometimes it's exactly that. The first line of Beckett's novel Murphy is a celebrated joke with philosophical and biblical undertones. The sun shone having no alternative on the nothing new. It's fascinating to see how it started with the biblical, but instead of the philosophical, the amateur novelist. The sun shone as only the sun can on nothing new. Not a joke at all. Version after version followed. As only sons can, as sons alone can, only sons must. The sun shone, it had no alternative on the nothing new, before finally we get to the famous line. There is, too, a wonderful and inspiring, dogged narrative of how W.B. Yeats pursued the opening of All Souls' Night from It Is Old Souls' Night, typescript, flat, and telling us what the title says, to Tis Old Souls' Night and the Great Christchurch Bell, first printing, still arguably redundant with a flash of grand archism, to the final great opening. Midnight has come and the great Christchurch bell and many a lesser bell sound through the room.
and it is All Souls' Night. In short, Yeats worked as hard on those three lines and as tirelessly as the writer's room on Curb Your Enthusiasm. This book is full of similar dedications to craft and reproduces some very unlikely manuscripts, poems written on the back of torn packets of wine gums, or, this is Beckett again, a bit of a Johnny Walker cardboard box. There's a glorious late Larkin poem, Long Lion Days. He sent it to his companion Monica Jones on a Bodleian postcard of a medieval illumination of a lion. People trusted the Royal Mail a lot more in the 1970s, but I bet he kept a careful copy all the same. There is, too, a quite interesting section on censorship, which would have been improved with some racier examples from the age that decided that obscenities might be admitted. It was a very gradual point-by-point process. As it is, it does show that nobody read literary works with more scrupulous analysis than Puritan censors. Here, the Lord Chamberlain objected to the moment in Beckett's Endgame when Ham first suggests they all pray to God, then shouts, The bastard, he doesn't exist. When Beckett agreed to change bastard to swine, it was passed. The authors of this book describe that point of agreement as curious, which just goes to show that the Lord Chamberlain's office had a better grasp of Beckett's theological jokes than contemporary scholars do. There's plenty of fun here, with well-illustrated examples from John le Carré, Mary Shelley, Kenneth Graham, awful handwriting, Franz Kafka and Ludwig Wittgenstein, among many others. If the book has a flaw rather than a limitation, it's that it doesn't acknowledge that though most changes are in the nature of severe cutting, or at least replacements, there are authors whose revisions are overwhelmingly expansions. Proust's editions, done by gluing strips onto the original draft, are so celebrated that they have their own word in French, paparole. According to Diana Suhami, Joyce's marginal insertions for Ulysses made a proof stage increase the length of the novel by a third. The immense additional production costs could only be borne because his publisher, Sylvia Beach, was extremely rich. Some consideration of these and other famously self-indulgent manuscripts would have been welcome, but as it is, this is an enjoyable, borderline smutty glimpse behind the curtain of what no respectable author would ever want anyone to see. That was Philip Hensher. Finally, Calvin Poe. We make our buildings, and afterwards they make us, Winston Churchill said in 1924 in a speech to the Architectural Association. This was flattery of the highest order, designed to butter up the audience of budding architects and inflate their sense of how much power they had to shape society. It's remarkable then, a hundred years later, how powerless architects have become when it comes to the biggest architectural crisis of our time, housing. According to the Royal Institute of British Architects, only 6% of new homes in the UK are designed by architects. Everything else is dealt with by volume house builders, with the top three alone building 25% of all new homes, churned out from identicate designs. In the niche architects are left with, making houses affordable has become the key focus, and architects are becoming cleverer at cutting corners to address this. One firm, OMMX, is working with developers to make home ownership cheaper by stripping houses down to the bare essentials. They'll build out the basics, 
electricity, heating, a basic bathroom, and leave the residents to install the partitions, fixtures, and fittings according to their needs and tastes over time. It is not a new approach, however. It's almost become an architectural trope. In the 2000s, Chilean architect Alejandro Aravena, faced with tight public housing budgets, would boast of building half a good house that would be expanded by residents themselves. Even as far back as the 1930s, Berlin's chief city planner Martin Wagner proposed the growing house in the wake of the Great Depression. While superficially compelling, these semi-self-built routes feel like the architects admitting defeat, accepting their limited agency in the face of crushing economic forces and, under the cover of feel-good marketing spin, selling what, in the end, are simply unfinished homes. Some architects have retreated into the realm of speculation, with the green belt remaining an object of fantasy. Russell Curtis of RCKA Architects has suggested that publicly owned golf courses in Greater London, most of which are in the green belt, could support up to 120,000 homes. It is a somewhat cynical land raid on golfers that also neatly sidesteps the complications of brownfield development. Peter Barber, an architect known for his quirky pseudo-Mediterranean housing projects, goes further. Before the line, the gargantuan city being built in Saudi Arabia that's shaped like a ruler was even a twinkle in the crown prince's eye, Barber proposed his own 100-mile city that would encircle the inner edge of London's green belt with a 200-meter-wide, four-story ribbon of intense, mixed-use development, complete with its own monorail. The green belt's original purpose as an enforced outer limit to London's growth would be retained while simultaneously providing millions of homes. These proposals are intentionally provocative, but with Keir Starmer dropping unsubtle hints about reviewing the sanctity of the green belt, architects might soon find outward expansion is a political possibility. Indeed, with a change of government in the air and Labour pledging to build 1.5 million new homes, architects are banking on the next government to get back into the centre of the action. That said, the Tories have already left architects the parting gift of some potentially substantial planning reforms. To help build more beautifully, design codes have been introduced and now are mandatory for all local authority areas. Urban designers will have the chance to shape these policies, codifying them into unequivocal, measurable visual rules for every part of England. These codes perhaps intentionally evoke 18th century pattern books, the Georgians' favourite compilations of standard designs that ensured a stylistic consistency of the architecture that was to be built without architects. Now part of the planning system, these 21st century pattern books aim to give communities their say on the architectural character of their neighbourhoods, from building types and heights to materials and colours. Beauty won't just be in the eye of the beholder, but also in the code. New developments, from bespoke houses to volume house building, would then at least be consistent, if not beautiful. Design codes also contain a radical idea to accelerate housing development. Follow the rules, the government is saying, and planning permission will be guaranteed. No more delay, doubt or discretion in the process. This is why these codes will probably outlive this government. For Labour's vision of a Britain of builders, not blockers, any steps towards a planning system based on straightforward directives and not whims is a step in the right direction. Indeed, the party's idea of a planning passport is a design code in all but name. Design codes, however, 
can become a double-edged sword, with aesthetics first on the chopping block in the face of ambitious housing targets. Labour's plans for fast-track approval and delivery of high-density housing on urban brownfield sites might well lead to a design code that encourages people to build skyscrapers next to stations. Yet for architects, a return to the golden age of council housebuilding remains the ultimate prize, back when prestigious municipal architects looked down on their peers in the private sector. To resurrect that spirit, architect Pooja Agrawal's social enterprise, Public Practice, has been getting architects into local authority jobs. It's perfectly timed for Labour's expected hiring spree within planning departments. With Starmer pledging fresh new towns and Angela Rayner the biggest boost to council house building for a generation, the ghost of Clement Attlee's government is back and architects are salivating at the prospect of being in the driving seat of the government machine. But few are honest enough to lay out the radical politics needed to revive the council house building boom. Kate McIntosh cut her teeth designing council housing for municipal architecture departments, including Dawson's Height Estate, an imposing brick ziggurat in Dulwich, completed in 1972 when she was only in her 20s. Now in her 80s, she remains a firebrand on housing. In a panel discussion organized by the Architecture Foundation last month, she extolled the need for compulsory purchase powers at existing use values and a land value tax, also known as a development charge, to unlock public house building. These are Atlee government policies verbatim. While land taxes wreak too much of Corbyn, if draft proposals are believed, Labour is indeed contemplating beefing up compulsory purchase powers nearer existing use values to deliver its vision. Unlike Atlee, however, we have the benefit of hindsight. For every new town unlocked by underpriced compulsory purchase, there was an Edward Pilgrim, the so-called Macmillan's martyr, a working-class toolmaker whose land was expropriated to build council housing by an apathetic bureaucracy that would make the post office blush. He was driven into debt and ultimately suicide, with the public outcry forcing a legislative U-turn back to paying market value. For every bit of unearned land profit taxed from speculative developers, there were overzealous bureaucrats who deemed new goalposts on an empty field a taxable development. And for every municipal monument, like Dawson's Heights, there was also a Ronan Point, where a rapidly but sloppily built council block collapsed like a house of cards after a gas explosion. Many younger architects romanticized this bygone era when the profession was still powerful and their heroic utopias were indulged by taxpayer-funded municipal patrons, but they conveniently forget to look at the full unvarnished story. In firing up the big state apparatus out of haste, there is a risk of bulldozing over civil society solutions, from housing cooperatives to community land trusts. Architects should aspire to more than a simple numbers game of churning out housing units to meet waiting lists. Instead, their attention should be focused on cultivating neighbourhoods where the inhabitants have the power to decide how they want to live. It's slower work, but the communities they will create will last longer. And that's everything for this week. But if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read them and much, much more in full. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.